right, so we are starting a new series this Sunday. Uh, last Sunday we wrapped up our series called What is Church? And we were looking at uh, why we do different uh, uh, things that we do on Sundays. We talked about why do we give, um, what does Pastor Jared do all week, what is a pastor. We talked about why do we sing, things like that. And uh, now we're going to be uh, jumping, in, jumping into a series in the book of Psalms. We're going to be in the book of Psalms for the next five weeks. Uh, so uh, this morning what I want to do before we jump into it is I'm just going to read the text. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 42. Uh, so the book of Psalms is in the Old Testament. Uh, it's going to be about, eh, about a third of the way through your Bible. Uh, you'll find it's the largest book in the Bible. Uh, there are 150 chapters and we're going to be in chapter 42 uh, it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's Bibles on the tables in front of you, so feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take that home with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, so Psalm chapter 42, uh, let me go ahead and read the Word of God. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jer Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let me pray real quick. Dear God, uh, thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and worship you this morning. Lord, right now, as I teach your word, help me. Put your words in my mouth. Help me to clearly articulate what you want all of us to hear this morning. Open all of our hearts. I pray that we would be humble before you and before your word, and that we would allow your word to, to do whatever you want to accomplish in our hearts this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this morning, we're going to be talking about depression. The title of the sermon today is, What to Do When You're Depressed. Now, uh, the, the, the title of this series is called, uh, I don't care if you think it's corny, because this is what I decided to call it, Psalms to Warm Your Heart. Right? So, it's getting cold outside, right? Temperature's starting to drop. Today is going to be the last day where we're in double digits for a while. We're about to drop down to single digits probably until the spring. And that in and of itself will probably depress some of you, right? But not only is it getting cold outside, sometimes things can get cold in our spiritual lives as well, right? 
the temperature just starts to drop and, you know, could be a specific traumatic event that happens or maybe uh, you're, somebody's giving you a hard time or persecuting you for your faith or maybe you have no idea why you feel depressed. You just wake up some mornings and you just don't feel good at all. Whatever it is, you're spiritually down in the dumps. God seems far off. He's not picking up the phone when you call, so to speak. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one here that ever has stuff like that? Anybody? Okay, good. Yeah. So I think all of us in here at some point or another have experienced something like that. Spiritual depression is real. It's common and it hurts. Okay? It's real, it's common, and it hurts. There's various causes for spiritual depression. Um, This isn't an exhaustive list, but these are some of the the main causes. Uh, It could be physical. Okay, clinical depression is real. Uh, Anxiety is real. Uh, In fact, 25% of Canadians will meet the criteria for clinical depression at some point in their lifetime. That's one out of every four people. That's a pretty high percentage. Uh, The good news is that God's Word has answers for this. Uh, You may need to go to counseling or to see a doctor, or maybe you don't, but it's okay if you do, okay? Uh, Another cause of spiritual depression could be a traumatic event. Oftentimes, traumatic events can send us reeling. Just ask Job. If you've ever read the story of Job in the Old Testament, Job lost everything within a span of days, including all of his property and possessions and his family, It's okay to be upset about a traumatic event, but Job shows us how to be upset. Uh, Job chapter 1 verse 22 says, in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Another cause of spiritual uh, depression could be unconfessed sin or secrets. So there was a, a study that was recently done by some sociologists, and they found that the average person is holding on to 13 secrets five of which they have never told anybody. That's the average person. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? Uh, Here's a quote from the study. They said, when participants were asked to judge the slope of a hill or the length of a distance, those who were preoccupied with keeping secrets judged the hills as steeper and the distances longer than they really were. So the sociologist that did the test went on to explain that, that the people who were holding on to secrets were Uh, in a very real way, actually carrying extra weight physically on their bodies. They tended to be more pessimistic at the way they looked at things. So if I saw a small hill, they see a great big mountain. If I see a kilometer, they see 20 kilometers. Everything just seemed more burdensome because they were carrying these things. Psalm 32 says, uh, the psalmist had a similar experience. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Another cause for spiritual depression could just be a slow drift from God and community. This one seems obvious on the, surf, on the surface, but it's one of the most common culprits of spiritual depression. If you don't spend time with God and with God's people, you're going to feel far from God which will result in spiritual depression. And uh, lastly, persecution can sometimes be the cause of spiritual depression. This was, uh, you'll find that this was the cause of uh, spiritual depression in many of the Psalms. Uh, David uh, was persecuted a lot. Uh, His 
His, his former mentor, King Saul, hunted him down constantly. His own son, Absalom, tried to hunt him down and kill him. Uh, so if that doesn't make you have a bad day, I don't know what will. And it would cause spiritual depression. He would cry out to God. So maybe for you, I know luckily uh, nobody's hunting any of us down and trying to kill us right now. But it could be being made fun of for your faith or rejected. Uh, those things can be extremely discouraging and can cause us to wonder why God does not step in at times. Now, the effects of depression can be disastrous. Depression can wreak havoc in our lives. It can cause a, a loathing of life and even a desire to end our life. It can cause loneliness. I mean, you know the feeling, possibly, you know, you can be surrounded by people. You can have people all around you, and yet you can feel entirely alone when you're depressed. Nobody understands what I'm going through. That's a common thing that will run through our minds. Depression can cause us to feel very distant from God and inability to hear God speak. So we get frustrated when we try to pray. We get frustrated when we try to read the Bible. It all just seems cold and dead. It's like words on a page and nothing seems to happen. Depression can cause doubt and fear. We can start to question our faith, whether any of this is even real. We can fear God's judgment. It can cause self-loathing and selfishness. It causes us to stop looking outside of ourselves and thinking about other people, and we're always thinking about ourselves because we're hurting. We're wounded. And so we have a, a woe-is-me attitude a lot of times. Well, for those of you that don't know, I've struggled with depression my entire adult life. There are days where I wake up and I simply just don't feel good at all. There's no specific cause, I just don't feel good. And I can't seem to get out of it no matter how many people try to cheer me up. It's pretty well known that Charles Spurgeon, who is arguably the greatest preacher who ever lived, uh, battled severe chronic depression. In fact, one time he said this about his depression. He said, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. This shapeless undefinable yet all-beclouding hopelessness cannot be reasoned with. It's a very good description of what depression can feel like. The sons of Korah are the authors of this psalm. By the way, um, uh, David did write many of the psalms in the psalms, but he did not write all of the psalms. Uh, the sons of Korah uh, wrote some of them. Solomon even wrote a couple of them. A couple other individuals wrote them. The sons of Korah wrote this psalm, and they're the authors of Psalm 42, and uh, they were godly men who loved the Lord. Yet it's pretty clear that spiritual depression was a very real part of their experience in life. I mean, just look at verse 3 and 9. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. Verse 9, he says, I say to, my, to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because the, of the oppression of my enemies? And while it's encouraging to know that we're not alone in depression, that there are godly men and women who have struggled with this and it doesn't make you any less godly because you struggle, struggle with depression, that's comforting, but it's not enough because we don't want to stay in depression, do we? And we weren't meant to, okay? The psalmist in Psalm chapter 42 might appear weak in his faith here on the surface, but this is actually an incredible example of strength from someone enduring real spiritual depression. 
And there's four things that the psalmist does. There's more than four things, but because of time, I'm just going to point out four of the things that the psalmist does to lift himself up out of depression that we can do too. And so that's what we're going to spend our time doing this morning. We're going to go, uh, I'm going to show you those four things that he does here in the text. So let's go ahead and get started with it. Number one, the first thing that I want to point out is that the psalmist prays honestly to God. He prays honestly to God. We see that in verses 3 and 9. Verse 3, he says this, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? And then verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? So in these verses, the psalmist lays out his complaint before God. He gets honest and he prays. If you notice in, in verse 2, he asks the question at the end, he asks the question, when? When shall I come and appear before God? In other words, when is this going to end? When is this going to be over? In verse 3, apparently he's got some detractors, some, some enemies in his life, and they're mocking him. Where is your God? And he was probably asking himself that same question. Where is God? Where are you? Why haven't you stepped in? And then in verse 9, there's the why question. Why have you forgotten me? God, why is this happening? And we ask those same questions a lot of times when we're going through difficult times. When will this end? Where is God? Why is this happening? Now, though he asks God, why have you forgotten me in verse 9, it's clear that he does not actually believe that God has forgotten him, okay? You just have to look at the context. Look at what he says in verse 8, where he says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. No, he knows that God has not forgotten him, but it feels like God has forgotten him. It feels like it. He's fighting to believe God's promises because the circumstances around him are all screaming, God isn't there, and he's fighting to believe no, God is there because I know that he's there because God's word says that he's there and God is faithful. I find today that most people trust their feelings more than they trust God. This is an epidemic in our culture. And it's an epidemic in the church now too. We trust our feelings more than we trust the word of God. If I feel like God is punishing me, it must be true. If it feels like God doesn't care about me, then it must be true. But that's not what the psalmist did here. Ed Welch, is a, he's a pastor, an author, and a Christian counselor. Um, and he's got a book called Depression, Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness, that I would highly recommend that you get if you're struggling with depression. He says this, he says, feelings don't define faith. Instead, faith is simply turning to the Lord. Faith is simply turning to the Lord. Sometimes in life, we just have to do things that we don't feel like doing. It's true. Sometimes in life, we just have to do things that we don't feel like doing. And sometimes that's the only way up from that stubborn darkness. God said of the Israelites in Hosea chapter 7, verse 14, he said, They do not cry to me from their hearts, but they wail upon their beds. They were in the midst of this suffering, and, and God wanted them to see this, this, 
this depression that they were in, this difficult circumstance they were in, as an opportunity for them to realize, hey, we're at rock bottom, let's cry out to God. But instead of doing this, they're just wailing upon their beds. Oh, woe is me. Oh, God has forgotten me. Oh, why is my life like this? And God's like, guys, stop it. Rather than seeing their situation as an opportunity to cry out to God, they wailed upon their beds in self-pity. Here's the deal. The first step out of the darkness is to cry out to God when you don't feel like crying out to God. Because you're not going to feel like it when you're depressed. Because I, I, I promise you, one of the purposes of, of God in allowing suffering in our lives is to draw us closer to Him. To decrease our reliance on ourselves and to increase our reliance on Him. God wants to hear from you and He wants you to hear from him. Psalm 50 verse 15, he says, call on me when you are in trouble and I will rescue you and you will give me glory. One practical thing you can do is if you're going through a a spiritual depression, turn to the Psalms. The Psalms give voice to our sufferings. These, These Psalms were written by godly men who were enduring real suffering and they were honest about it. And you'll find that many of the Psalms will give voice to what you are actually going through right now in your life. And you'll be able to identify with it. Pray those things back to God. Pray that scripture back to God. So number one, pray honestly to God. Number two is this, rest in God's sovereignty. What to do when you're depressed? We need to rest in God's sovereignty. This is in verse 7 and 8. But verse 7 and 8 says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. So that phrase, deep calls to deep, what that's referring to is it's it's referring to two waterfalls, okay? So you picture a valley with two waterfalls that are crashing down. If you've ever been at a waterfall before, like Niagara Falls, for example, it's a thunderous noise, right? You've got all this water coming down. So you just imagine these two huge waterfalls and they're they're calling out to each other in the valley. And so he says that, that this just the things that are coming into his life again and again, it's like he can't get up. It's like a constant wave that just continues to come down and crash down upon him and he can't seem to catch his breath. But notice something in verse 7, what he says. He says, all of, he's talking to God and he says, all of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. These circumstances causing this depression are not just allowed by God. They are caused by God. How does that sit with you? Does that conflict with your view of who God is and how God operates? It may be one of the hardest, hardest truths about God to grasp. But think with me for a moment here, okay? What most of us want to believe is that God has nothing to do with our depression or our suffering. But what would that say about God? If God has nothing to do with our depression or our suffering, well, what it would say about God is that he either doesn't really care that much and he's just not all that involved in our lives at all, or that he just doesn't have the power to stop it and take it away. He either doesn't care or he's not able to do anything about it. 
Let me put it this way. What's more comforting? A storm that is sent and controlled by a loving God or a storm that God did not send, send and is out of control? What would you rather have? An out of control storm or a storm that is sent and controlled by a God who loves you and knows what he's doing? Ed Welch, I'm going to quote from him again. He puts it like this. He says, God is over all things, and nothing happens apart from his knowledge and will. By the time suffering or depression comes to our doorstep, God did it. To believe anything else is to opt for a universe that is random and out of control without a guiding hand bringing all things to a purposeful and awe-inspiring conclusion. Church, the universe is not random and out of control. And neither are the events in your life. Now, a question naturally arises here. Why would God send difficulty and suffering into our lives? Why would he allow it? Why would he send it? Why would it be a part of his will? I've come to see over time that God has allowed depression to remain a reality in my life, to discipline me and to keep me close to him and reliant upon him. Hebrews 12, 7 says... It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I've just seen in in my own life that depression has kept me needy. It's kept me from becoming prideful. It's kept me from uh, coming to a place in my life where I can think that I don't need God or that I can get by just fine without being constantly on my knees in prayer, without constantly being in the Word, without constantly being in Christian community. I can't think that way because I will not make it if I'm not pursuing Christ with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength. I have to do that to survive. I need him. I'm thankful to God that he allows those things in my life because it's drawn me closer to Jesus. Think about it like this. If you're a parent, I'm sure you know the feeling when your child gets angry with you because you won't let her have or do something that she wants. The child believes that this thing will be good for me, but as the parent, you know it will not. So you withhold that thing from your child. Now, you don't withhold because you're unloving, do you? No, you withhold precisely because you're loving. You withhold because you know what's best for your child. So why is it so hard to believe that God does the exact same thing with us? Why is that so hard for us to believe? Just imagine with me for a moment. What if God is so much bigger and wiser than you've ever believed? What if God sees 10,000 things that you can't see? Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. In Mark chapter 4, the disciples were crossing the sea while Jesus was asleep in the boat. And a fierce storm arose, and their boat began to fill with water. And, And in a panic, they went down into the bottom of the boat and they woke Jesus up and they said, Lord, don't you care that we're going to drown? Don't you care? Don't we kind of feel like that sometimes? You ever feel like that? God, don't you care what's going on in my life? Jesus wakes up. In verse 39 and 40, 
It says, when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Listen. Don't disconnect verse 7 and verse 8 in Psalm chapter 42. They're both true. Yes, the breakers and the waves in your life, God allows them and he sends them. But yes, day and night he commands his steadfast love towards you. Both of those things are true. The fact that God allows these breakers in your waves to come over you in your life does not nullify the fact that God's steadfast love is constant and it is never changing in your life. They are both true. Though it might seem that all of God's breakers and waves are passing over you right now, you know the reality is that the only one who really ever experienced all of God's breakers and waves was Jesus on the cross. He experienced the full extent of God's breakers and waves. You see, in God's mercy, he doesn't deal with us according to what we deserve, according to our sins. Instead, Jesus took the full wrath of God on the cross so that you could be forgiven and receive God's grace. God will never overwhelm you with his breakers and and waves because Jesus endured them on your behalf. So if you are in Christ then your debt is paid in full. And this storm is not sent to punish you, but to purify you. Okay? The storms in your life are not sent to punish you. They are sent to purify you, to draw you closer to God. So rest in God's sovereign love, knowing that he is in absolute control over these events in your life. Number three, what to do when you are depressed. Stop listening to yourself and, stop and start talking to yourself. Stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. So two times in this psalm, the psalmist repeats a refrain in verses 5 and verse 11. He sa- he, here's what he says. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Martin Lloyd-Jones commented on the psalm, and here's what he said. He said, most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. You know some of the, the, the conversation that kind of goes on in your head when you're depressed. Maybe you might hear something like, my sin is just too great for God to forgive, or These things are happening to me because God is punishing me. Or if God loved me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. My dad used to call that stinking thinking. Stinking thinking. Now make no mistake, spiritual warfare is real in this. Depression is spiritual warfare. Behind depression is the father of lies. That's what Jesus called Satan. He's the father of lies. Depression leaves us vulnerable, and Satan attacks where we're vulnerable. When negative thoughts and doubts come, a good thing to do is to ask yourself this question. Would God say something like that 
Or does that sound like something the devil would say to me? So when you start getting these negative thoughts playing through your head, God, will, God could never forgive me for this sin, or God's punishing me, or if God really loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen. A good thing to do, a practical thing, is just take that and shine some light on it and go, does this sound like something that I would read in the Bible? Or does this sound like something that the devil wants me to believe? That's a good first step towards shining some light on some of that stuff. We've got to stop internalizing destructive lies We've got to speak truth back to them. You cannot let how you feel govern what is true. The psalmist shows us how to do this. He, he doesn't deny the pain in his life. He doesn't deny it, all right? He confronts it, but then he examines it. And he asks the question, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why, why are you feeling like this, self? Yes, he was in pain, but he reminded himself that God is faithful that God's love is steadfast every day, and that this pain won't last forever. I shall again praise him. Here's some practical ways of how you can talk to yourself and stop listening to yourself, right? Number one, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Stop looking to your circumstances for evidence that God loves you. Stop looking to your circumstances for evidence that God loves you. I'm going to quote from Ed Welch again. He says this. He says, The cross is the only evidence that can fully persuade you that God is at all times good and generous. The cross is the only evidence that can persuade you that God is at all times good and generous. Guys, you don't need to look for signs. I hear that a lot. I'm looking for a sign that God loves me, or I'm looking for a sign that God is real. Listen to me. The devil wants you to look for signs. The devil wants you to look for signs. And, and meanwhile, God is just up there, and he's saying, I've already sent my son, Jesus Christ, to die for you on the cross. What more do I have to convince, do to convince you that I love you? I love you. Get over it. I just love you. I've already proven it on the cross. You don't have to look for writing in the sky. You don't have to look for some miraculous thing to happen. I love you. I've proved it on the cross. If you are in Christ, God loves you with an everlasting love. And I don't care how many storms you endure in your life. It's true. Look to the cross. Memorize the word. Memorize the word. One of the ways that you can talk to yourself instead of listen to yourself is memorize the word. We talked about spiritual warfare the other day. But how are you going to have faith in God's promises if you don't know what they are? It's kind of hard to do that. We don't urge you to read your Bible, guys, so that God will love you. We urge you to read your Bible because God already loves you. And you need to know that. And you need to know those specific promises, okay? What if in the midst of your deepest depression, you had Romans chapter 8, verse 1 at the ready? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when Satan says, oh, you've really done it now, God's never going to forgive you that sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Get the heck out of here, Satan. Oh. Look what you've done now. The church is never going to accept you now. 
if people knew what you had done, if they knew about your past, they would all turn their backs on you and shun you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Get out of here. How powerful would that be? Let's just, let's practice that together. Why don't we say this together? Romans 8, 1. I want you guys to say it with me. It's up on the screen, right? Okay, here, let's go. One, two, three. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Start there. Memorize that one. Do that one that week, this week. That's a, a short, simple one, one of the most powerful verses in Scripture. Start there. Memorize the Word, and then be with people of the Word. Be with people of the Word. The psalmist had enemies that were taunting him. Like, oh, where's your God? Oh, you have a God that loves you? Really? Then why is he letting all these bad things happen in your life? If God's really real, then why hasn't he stepped in and done something about this? You might have some people in your life who say similar things to you. It might even be in your own family. Maybe your family members try to poke holes in your faith and urge you to abandon God when things get hard. That's why, that's why we do things like lighthouses. Guys, we don't just do that so we'll have something on the schedule. We do that because you need to be in community. You need to be around people who will speak truth and life into you. Because I know that some of you are going home to situations or you're going to work at situations or you're going to school in situations where you have almost nobody who is speaking truth into your life. You've got to be in community. Lighthouse, stages, discipleship. That's why we do these things. Be around people who will speak truth into you. All right, last point. What to do when you're depressed? Seek God, not relief. Seek God, not relief. We see this in verses 1 and 2. He says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So he uses imagery of a deer parched for thirst in a waterless place uh, to try to communicate the sense of desperation. Now, I want you to notice something here. His desperation is not for relief from his circumstances. His desperation is for God. Did you see that? He's not going, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul to have my enemies defeated. It's not what he says. So pants my soul for my debt to go away. So pants my soul for me to not be lonely anymore. No. He says, so pants my soul for you. For you. Charles Spurgeon says, ease he did not seek. Honor he did not covet. But the enjoyment of communion with God was an urgent need of his soul. He viewed it not merely as the sweetest of all luxuries, but as an absolute necessity. Have you guys heard the phrase, don't miss the forest for the trees? You guys heard that phrase? Anybody? Okay, so basically what, what, what it's saying is, don't miss the forest for the trees. So if you're in the middle of a forest, right, and you're just kind of looking at these individual trees, uh, what the, the quote is basically saying is, don't miss the bigness of the forest. Like, if you were in an airplane, right, you'd see this vast, massive forest, 
that would be majestic. But when we're, we're closer in, right, we get focused in on the, the trees and we miss the vastness of the forest. So don't get focused on the little details and miss the big picture is basically what that quote means. We get so caught up in all the little problems in our life. And we come to God, oh God, make this problem go away. Oh God, why is this happening to me? Oh God, this person is, is doing this to me. And they're trees. They're trees. Those problems aren't real problems. The only real need we have, church, is to be closer to God. Look at the forest. That's why you were made. All those little problems in your life are pointing you towards one thing, towards your real need, and that's your need for God. God does not bring relief to our circumstances. God is the relief in our circumstances. God is the relief to our circumstances. A deer in need of water will go looking for it until she either finds it or she dies, right? A Christian who loves God will do the same. You know whether or not you felt like this before. Some of you, when, when you read these two verses, when you hear verse 1 and 2, your heart leaps in, within you. Yes! Yes, I, I'm desperate for God. I, I long for His presence. You know that feeling. Let me, let me encourage those of you who maybe you're struggling with doubt this morning. Maybe you struggle with, uh, you might be going through a spiritual depression right now and you feel far from God and it's causing you to doubt, you know, maybe even your salvation, things like that. Let me encourage you. If you were not a Christian and if you did not have the spirit of Christ inside of you, you would not thirst for God like this. And you would not want to thirst for God like this. You would not see this verse and, and your heart go, yes, I, lo I long to be like that. People without the Spirit of Christ do not do that. <laughs> this does not make sense to somebody who does not have the Spirit of Jesus inside of them. Okay, This verse is totally foreign to somebody without the Spirit of Christ. So, be encouraged. Just because he feels distant or you are in a dry season does not mean he has forsaken you. It means that he is wooing you deeper into the wilderness to meet with him. Okay? Now there's some of you here who know, who look at these verses and you go, this sounds totally foreign to me. I do not get this at all. And I've never felt that way. And I've never even really wanted to feel that way. Many are thirsty but you aren't thirsting for God. You're thirsting for God's gifts. Jeremiah puts it like this. He says, You've forsaken the fountain of living water for broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You will not quench your thirst until you only thirst for God. Let me put it like this. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's one of my uh, favorite verses that sums up the gospel. He says, Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So he's, he's trying to explain to us, this is why Jesus came and he died on the cross for us and rose again. He's trying to sum it up. He did it so that he might bring us to God. Okay? 
You were made by God, for God, to worship God, and to enjoy Him forever. That is why you were placed on planet Earth. For that reason and that reason only. If you, if you believe that God exists to give you a comfortable life and to make all your problems go away, you'll never be able to make sense of the trials and the difficulties in your life. They'll never make sense. You'll, you'll never understand this Bible. You'll never understand the gospel. That's not why God exists, and that's not why you were put here. If God exists to make our lives great, then it's legitimate to question his goodness when our lives aren't great, right? But if God exists to bring us to God, then anything he allows us to suffer is totally worth it if it serves that purpose. Does that make sense? Are you guys picking up what I'm putting down? Okay, I hope so. That, church, is what's called joy. That's what lays the foundation for a Christian who is totally unshakable in trials. Because if all you want is more of God, if you understand that your greatest joy is in just being nearer to God, and you understand that God will use even the trials and the difficulties in your life to serve that purpose and bring you closer to Him, then there is nothing, nothing that can kill your joy. Nothing that, do you understand how joy is so much different than happiness? That's why people in the Middle East or in China right now who are under the threat of death can be joyful and can continue to go out and share the gospel even in the face of prison time and they don't give a rip because they know they've got Jesus and one day soon this stuff is going to end and they're going to be with him forever and there's not going to be any more persecution there. There's not going to be any more crying or shame or death or sickness. It's going to be over forever and so nothing can take their joy. Don't you want that? Doesn't that sound deeper and more authentic than the cheap joy, the cheap thrills that the world offers you? It does to me. It causes my heart to leap. That's the gospel. That's what you were meant for. I'm going to wrap it up by saying this. So, you'll notice there's a lot of back and forth in the psalm, right? Like he, he goes from, you know, like, ah, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And then he kind of, you know, talks himself out of it. Why, hey, self, listen, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? And then he goes back to all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And then he, he you know, states, well, the Lord commands his steadfast love. It's just this back and forth, and I think what that, what that tells us is that we are people who have a very real hope in heaven, but who also are very truly present in the here and the now, okay? We long for God's felt presence, and we know that He's with us, and yet it's also true in a sense that at times we can feel an acute absence, right? They're both true. 2 Corinthians, puts it, Paul puts it like this. He says, now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we will see him face to face. We are saved. 
If you are in Christ and you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, then you are saved and you are sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we are waiting for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Soon and very soon, He will come to take us home. And we'll no longer have to pant. We'll drink freely. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're going to move into a time of discussion questions now for just a few minutes, okay?